0: Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Luskarten. Today, I'm joined by two fantastic psychologists, Drs. Wendy Nilsson and Lisa Ulmer to discuss precision medicine and the work they are doing at the National Science Foundation, NSF, to transform and personalize health and medicine using technology-based solutions. Dr. Nilsson is currently the Acting Deputy Division Director in the Division of Information and Intelligence Systems within the Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate at the NSF. And Dr. Ulmer is a clinical child psychologist who is currently completing a Science and Technology Policy Fellowship at the NSF, which is sponsored by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. As part of her fellowship, Dr. Ulmer is co-chair of the Healthcare Policy Fellows Affinity Group. Wow. Thank you both for being here with us today, and welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Yes, Absolutely.
0: thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, well, Wendy, Lisa, I'm, I'm so eager to dive in today. And, and learn a little bit more about some of these phrases that I've been reading about increasingly in the field, phrases like precision medicine or personalized healthcare or individualized healthcare. They seem to be popping up more and more. I'm seeing them in, in both kind of like public facing literature, but also scholarly work as well. And I want to dig into this concept a bit further. What is meant by phrases like, you know, quote, precision medicine, and also, why is the NSF at the forefront of this mission?
1: So let me let me start with the end of your question because I think that that's a key question and it's it's something we hear often. So the National Science Foundation is is the place in the U.S. that all of the sciences come together. So we do we have biology, we have computing, engineering, geo, geo sciences, um, social behavioral. We have all the sciences in one building, but we work, we work with other agencies when they need kind of these transformations in these fundamental sciences to mm-hmm. drive other things. Smart health comes from that. What we watched was the computing and engineering world take off with mobile technology, with computing in ways that the health world wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I talked to somebody once and they said, oh no, our CAT scan is still running on Windows 7. Oh, you know, gosh. Um, but. And there's reasons for that, don't get me wrong. It's not from a lack of, of finesse, but um, there are ways to do this differently. And so we need people who right now are putting their energy into transforming many other industries. We need that in health. What's more important than health? It's a really, we see this as, as a way to uh, really impact the world in, a, in a, an important way because while all the other industries make sense and are important, nothing's more important. If we don't have health, we have nothing else. So the National Science Foundation came together with the National Institutes of Health um, to really start to address what kind of really transformative computing, engineering, math, and math, social, behavioral sciences, what did we really need to do um, to transform health? Mm-hmm. So um, we work together because what we want to make sure is what we we saw originally was people would be creating new computing, new engineering, especially without talking to the health world. Right. Um, so they would solve the problem, but mm-hmm. the, they didn't solve the problem because people had spent years. So you know, if I want to, if I want to reduce the rates of suicide,
0: mm-hmm. can I
1: just go on Twitter and analyze the data? Well. Suicide researchers would say it's going to take more than that. Twitter doesn't represent the whole population. You can't just look for words like death and -hmm. and do that. There's a lot. So by bringing the sciences together, bringing the biomedical community in with the fundamental sciences, we can work in a way that really transforms the field. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So that's our, our first thing. So then when we think about things like precision medicine or personalized health um, I think this is where NSF is so kind of important because these in-house, we have traditionally looked at averages across populations. So the studies say, you know, at this age with this history, you're, you're more than likely to do have this problem or that problem. Some areas we have better data, some areas we don't. Um, I know, you know, when i as a psychologist, I know psychology has been challenged with getting the kind of data that we need, because it's hard to get big representative samples. So, you know, if I'm coming from, a, especially if I'm coming from a minority group, these are challenging. So are my numbers right? I think it's kind of when you think about aspirin. Um, when we started with aspirin for heart disease, it was a sample of 32 older white male physicians. Wow. So if you were an older white male physician, Fabulous. Take that aspirin because it reduced your heart risk. Now for me, oh wait, when we did the data, it's not so much. Mm-hmm. So and for an African-American woman or, or a Latina, is the numbers the same? We don't know. So I think we need to think about so precision medicine really uses analytic methods, new technology to get us better. So I can understand if my doctor is talking to me, he's talking about me not me as an average human, but me as an individual. So my risk might be up for this, but they might be down for that. I can take that complex dynamic system and create models of it. I can get data that I need to create a model. Um, I, clinicians do this all the time, but sometimes the data is too spread, too unable to be accessed, right? You can't get you know, you can send people home with things all the time, but do you get all the data? Do you get it in real time? I'm thinking, sure. you know, in cognitive behavioral therapy, right? We wanted data in real time mm-hmm. because, you know, you're if you look back and try to make a comment about how I was feeling, it's going to be different than I'd be feeling in the moment. Absolutely. So, you know, using technology to change that, we can get these personalized models that deal with us as an individual and give clinical clinical teams the tools that they need to be able to do what they do so well.
0: Mm -hmm. Wendy, when you share some of that feedback, (laughs) it's so helpful for me and and hopefully our listeners too, to better understand the, the scope of NSF's work, but also what precision medicine is setting out to do. I think about the the power that you talk about or the change that you're trying to get at from a more siloed to interdisciplinary approach to everything. We've been so siloed in in all these different ways. Much of my research and scholarly work has been focused on privacy in the technology space. And I think about that very siloing that you're talking about, Wendy, that, that if we have a bunch of technologists and a bunch of psychologists, we might not know how to read those privacy policies and terms and conditions and protect our clients or patients in the process that companies might design something and we might be giving those to our clients but at the same point who's doing the the translational work and how are we working together to create some of those interventions and systems of change so it's really interesting to hear you talk about that on a broader um, even larger uh, research field and also applied care i'm also thinking about you know i was gonna be asking about this later in our conversation, but I, I feel like asking about it now. And Lisa, I'd love your feedback too. Like what does all this mean for health equity? Because I kind of hear that built into Wendy's answer a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious how you two think about this.
1: So I'll start on that. Cause I think it, it really is implicit and or explicit actually in what we're trying to do. Um, technology is ubiquitous now. Um, and But as you know, in privacy, ubiquity doesn't necessarily, it causes additional problems. Mm -hmm. When we bring teams together in a way we can make sure we're not doing harm, Mm -hmm. um, but we can also collect data in in a way that makes sense for people. Should I, if I'm working two jobs, you know, have to come in and do things right when I need to, Mm
0: -hmm. right?
1: When when my clinician needs to, or can I provide information? Can I provide things um, in real time? I'm just thinking of a a project a few years back where they were looking at people being released from rehab. Um, so they'd been in substance abuse treatment, they were out in the community, and they used GPS tracking and asked people where they use. <laughs> and when those people got were headed into the area where they used, they um, actually got a ping from their clinician and said, hey, Lisa, I noticed you're in the neighborhood where you've had trouble in the past, you okay? If you didn't Mm -hmm. respond after a few pings, you actually got your clinician on a FaceTime saying, hey, Lisa. What happened was everybody was worried about the privacy. And yes, I believe me, we're all worried about that. Mm -hmm. But what happened was the people in this program were thrilled Mm -hmm. because they were getting the help they needed when they needed it. So, Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, that was a whole range of folks who, you know, were very, you know, they were grateful for their treatment but this extended it. It put, the, it put their clinician in their pocket, really,
0: yeah.
1: and gave them, the clinician then could really make sure that things were happening the way they thought, people were getting services at the way they thought. So if you think about it from an equity perspective, you know, that's not going to work for everyone. Mm-hmm. But understanding what kind of models people want, how does it work for them? Because, um, you know, like on that project, the privacy was a huge issue at, with IRBs and everything. But then when they went and talked to the population, they said, we'd be thrilled. When we're struggling, it would be great to have somebody reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that approach in other things now. But I think we can also use that same technology that industry uses to target us in the grocery store and at, sure. the, at the, you know, tracking us to to understand when people want that kind of help and when they don't. Hmm. And who wants that kind of help and when is it going to be a problem? So Lisa, I'll let you add on. Right. yes, I think Wendy brings up such an important
2: point. I think especially uh, this two years that we've been in the midst of the pandemic and the need for mental health services has just skyrocketed. Right. the the EDs have really filled up with um, um, people reporting suicidal ideation, there's more need than ever for, um, for access to evidence based interventions and technology can uh, bridge some of that gap to provide um, the needed intervention. Unfortunately, there just are not enough psychologists and there just are not enough slots to see everybody who needs the care right at, at, at this time. And but technology can fill some of those gaps. I mean, there are apps that are using machine learning and AI to. Um, personalized um, evidence-based treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, There's a a really cool project that the NSF is funding that's targeting um, opioid use disorder. Um, They're using, as I said, artificial intelligence and machine learning to personalize uh, CBT and biofeedback. and, and using virtual reality to target this. So I wow. think using technology to provide um, broader access hmm. um, to people when they're having challenges is is going to bridge that gap. But also, I think it's important to note that um, our health system really targets people who are are having a a really tough time, um, Mm -hmm. and that we're not so great at prevention. um, Mm -hmm. And apps and technology can provide uh, help and um, interventions to try earlier when people are having trouble so that they don't get to a point where they're in a a critical moment.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something that um, I've often thought about, even when I'm working with clients and they come to me, um, we're often in a crisis mode, or we're in a tough, tough period. You know, when couples come to me, they're traditionally not saying everything's great. We just want to check to make sure the engine's working. Um, usually, there's something that that there's there's some sort of sound that's happening in that engine, and we're we're here to try and figure out what to do next. And and that preventative approach—it sounds really provocative—and like I'm really excited by it. I'm I'm curious. I'm hearing two words precise and broad. And in my brain, I'm thinking about something. I I wrote this to you all before our show, but I'm thinking about this documentary that I recently watched. It's not a new documentary, but I was uh, cued to it because of um, Dr. Paul Farmer's recent passing. Um, The late humanitarian and physician worked in places like Haiti and Rwanda and Really had a broad-based, almost like public health approach to various uh, key issues in those populations: tuberculosis, uh, HIV and AIDS, for instance. Um, and he was working in these poor nations traditionally. And I'm thinking about Dr. Farmer's approach and maybe this precision medicine, and trying to kind of conceptualize where these two fall. Where do they go? Because one seems really like let's target, let's Let's recognize that some of our research too from the past did not represent the groups we are now treating and seeing, and then you know treating a big broad swath of the population that is dealing with like a, a population health issue. And so, how do these two kind of interweave or overlap, or, or how are they separate and dif- distinct?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and that was such a great documentary mm-hmm. as well. Um, I, You know, it uh, reminds me one example that may not fit the letter of the definition of precision medicine, but uh, that they talked about in the documentary was um, you mentioned Peru and their tubercul- tuberculosis program. Um, they did have kind of a one size fits all approach and their protocol to treating tuberculosis. But then they found this subset of, of folks who had multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Right. Um, and they needed, they needed a, a more individualized protocol um, to be able to, to battle that. And they were um, pretty successful from my understanding. So, um, I mean, psychologists already do precision medicine, I think, to an extent. Um, so one example I think of, one of the first things that we do with a new patient is, is take the history. So, and from this, of course, we um, we obtain information to think diagnostically, but it also provides a lot of information uh, that we can use to understand, are there barriers to treatment? Are mm-hmm. there ways that we need to tailor Treatments um, in specific ways, so it's more accessible to patients. Mm. So we can um, we can tailor down something like something broad like CBT to be more effective to individual people. Um, and I I had the example earlier, and I'll just mention that, yeah, it briefly of um, tech being used on a broad scale um the the broad use of apps that are using these evidence-based treatments to make them more specific um artificial intelligence machine learning to tailor them to individuals um we're also doing a better job of reaching people in rural areas because of the the push for telemedicine i remember before the pandemic that was i i I heard bits and pieces about it, and hospitals. Uh, I think we're trying to get on that that wagon, but there just wasn't the support from insurance um, and structurally. But now, people not have, I had patients driving, you know, two hours to the clinic, and that's just not each way. That's just wow, not to what a burden,
0: especially right, right now. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Actually, there are even there's even technology uh, focused on using drones to mm. to, to drop precision medicine, um, blood, other healthcare um, needs, or products to rural and inaccessible areas. So technology, I think, is can really help us um, deliver more precise medicine. Uh, or medical interventions to a broader swath of people. Wow! wow.
1: And, and can I add to that? Because Please. I think, you know, the, the technology, the ubiquity of technology allows this public health approach too. So it, you don't, you know, a lot of times, um, if you think about it, um, trying to create these algorithms, trying to collect this device, we think about the internet of things, all the devices around us. Um, we can do we can actually monitor behavior based on Wi-Fi patterns right um, you know Wi-Fi when it hits your body does something different than when it doesn't um, so you know there's all of these opportunities that are not Ooh, that's creepy because um, right. you have consent and everything but you know understanding what people are doing how that feeds and when when should you be reaching out like you're saying a couple doesn't come to you when they're happy but if mm-hmm. you could if you had information in a preventive approach that things were not going well. Let's say in the office, right. um, you were collecting some non-invasive data, but you know, some, and that you could then say, I, you know, hey, I think, you know, I think you're having, I think we could use with a talk at this point. Mm-hmm. You could do these reach outs, but but that's an efficient and effective way to get there. Mm-hmm. And in terms of if you try to do some the same thing with everyone, it's incredibly expensive. And, and but understanding who needs what when becomes a very different approach. And it allows you to get to a public health approach in a different, very different way. So Absolutely. it's a very precision public health. Yeah,
0: I appreciate both of you helping me understand that, because at first I was thinking, are these discordant ideas? And yet, as I hear you both talk about it, no, it helps me better understand, like, we're going to be better at each of these and we're going to be able to bring these together and treat uh populations more effectively. So, I mean, it's fantastic to hear that. I want to home in on one part of your work at NSF, which seems to focus on smart and connected health in particular. As I understand it from, from the literature, it's to accelerate the development and integration of innovative computer and information science and engineering approaches to support the transformation of health and medicine. So tell us a little bit about what that, what that might mean to us. What, what is this SMART and Connected Health Program?
1: So this is a program that grew up um, really out of the, the interests of both NIH and NSF. Um, and so what we found was these interdisciplinary teams were not the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and like when you were saying, you know, how does a psychologist talk to a computer scientist? I'll tell you, right. we had a battle. One time I was writing a paper with a computer scientist and I kept saying gold standard for treatment. Uh-huh. And he kept talking about ground truth. And finally, I said to him, mm-hmm. what the heck do you keep talking about truth? This uh-huh. is health. We don't even have truth in death. It used to be zero one, but now it's not quite even zero one in death. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be sort of dead in the dead world, you know? Right. So he said, what does it mean? Like mm-hmm. we, we require things to exist or, you know, we need to measure them. And I said, well, we measure too, but we call it ground truth. It's as close as we can get to truth. Mm-hmm. Oh no. I mean, we call it gold standard, because that's as right. close as we can get to truth. And, and it was, it was it, in hindsight, it was hysterical, but it was mm-hmm. so frustrating mm-hmm. when we were having this conversation because we respected each other, but we were really so talking at cross purposes. So sure. what we wanted to do was uh, build the teams that would allow that crosstalk to begin. That would allow people when you know everybody that doesn't work in them in that clinical healthcare system under, always says why is this happening why is this happening if you come from tech let's say you're you know you work for Amazon you think what kind of supply chain is this healthcare system it doesn't make uh-huh. any and having people that understand those systems who know the research know why we are where we are allows people then to work on in a way that will actually be translatable. Um, because, right, I remember when we, early, when we started this, somebody said, um, we're gonna build, and then I told you about Wi-Fi being able to, but they were gonna measure yeah. breathing with Wi-Fi. So Wi-Fi yeah. signals would be used to assess chest, chest movement, which would be indicative of breathing. Wow. So Very cool, sexy idea, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, how do you measure breathing? And they said, breathing. And I said, okay, how do you measure breathing? And they were like, breathe. And we were doing a Laurel and Hardy stunt at this point because I kept Uh. saying, (laughs) finally I said, how do you assess respiration? And they said, Mm -hmm. what's respiration? like?" Mm -hmm. So I said, you think you're going to transform the health system by being able to measure breathing non-invasively, but you don't have anybody that has respiratory experience on this. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the things we need to worry about when we're measuring breathing? So um, they got somebody on their team and now they're, go- they're moving in a completely different direction because what it turned out, they were going to have a student stand against a wall and they were going to say, inhale, exhale. Wow. Well, that's a great place to start.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it
1: isn't going to transform anything besides mm-hmm. your students who's probably going to be winded at the end of this. So um, I think having these teams, you know, I mentioned suicide, you know, somebody has their child have a suicide in their, on their dorm and they want to do something to help, but without the right team, they revisit everything we've done and could potentially harm. So what we want is these teams to start. And what I think is really glorious about what we do is we fund a lot of students. So these teams have graduate students and undergraduates working with them. So they're creating a new language. So imagine um, I'm thinking of a project that we fund that has psychologists. They're measuring the speech and language from patients and psychologists. Yes, with total conformed consent. But they're doing video, they're doing facial, they're doing, um, they're, they're measuring all sorts of things and trying to understand what makes an improvement right after the session and what makes an improvement long-term. We know a lot of the things that make a difference in clinic, but we don't know them at the patient level. We don't know them at the individual level. But this team has students working with them. They have undergraduates. Think of what language they're going to have when they walk out. They'll have a computing degree but they're going to tell you more about affect and mood and speech and speech prosody and all sorts of things Absolutely. that no other computer science graduate's going to get. Mm-hmm. So we're transforming the world that way. So I think we're breaking down the silos in a, in a really kind of back-channel way too. Mm-hmm. We're doing it upfront by funding teams, but we're breaking it down. I hope long-term by funding all these students.
0: I'm curious to, to learn a little bit more about, the process. So we've been talking about kind of these specific projects and neat initiatives. But I'm wondering like at the NSF, how does this trickle down to our patients? Take me from like the, the high level and the funnel to, to that person. How do we get there? What does that process look like uh, on a, on a broad level if possible?
1: So we are very early at NSF in a, In the smart health program, we are very early stage work. So um, we wanted things to be safe. When I first started working in technology, people would say, I know it works. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, I want the mom test. Would you do it to your mom? Oh, all of a sudden people stop and say, Mm or your kid. Would you Mm -hmm. do that with your kid? Would you stick that sensor in your kid? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, ooh, everybody stops. And I say, you know... We all understand the issues with randomized trials and all the challenges research faces, but we do it to keep people safe. So let's think about that. So we do very early stage work, and then it has to go to a funder like NIH, or it gets adopted by industry, um, who can fund the continued research to make sure it's safe, efficacious, and is doing what we think it's going to do. And then that's when you'll start to see it trickle in. Um, Some of these programs have worked directly with insurers to have insurers. I'm just thinking um, there's a really interesting small business that took their diabetes control effort. So they type two diabetes people with poorly controlled glucose um, said, or, you know, truly controlled um, said, we'll let you, we'll refund your money on the prescription to the insurers Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, if you don't get a 10% change. And we can't maintain it after that. So, you know, clinicians work hard to get that control, right? So it's not like you can do that easily. But by offering this and saying, here, we'll give you this digital prescription. We'll do all these things. And it really was a very beautifully psychologically informed project. Um, But they did this and they made a difference. And lo and behold, they're making a profit. They are being able to intervene in a way it makes sense when people need it and where they want it. So like they found out in that project that people you would say to them you need to eat you know and they would give, you get these clinical ideas of what the food is but that doesn't translate to what's on my plate. Mm-hmm. So these folks so they started a recipe site and people would contribute recipes and most mm-hmm. of these folks are older they would start contributing recipes and and saying when I'm having this I use this and oh try this it's a lower starch it's lower sure. it's got lower Whatever, and um, but that you can do in a technological space, it's easier. You can how are you going to do that in your clinic? Have a recipe right. wall, um, sure. but the technology then allows us to really and that. But those kind of projects, then they can get FDA approved, or they can get you know funded by insurance. Um, you know they can, and and a lot of what we do ends up through the FDA approval process. Because they're if they're if they're involved in the treatment of a diagnose, a diagnosed disorder, then they have to be. But um, you know, eventually, we we will see them with the right evidence and the right you know evaluation translate into our communities.
0: I'm I'm struck by a couple of things, and I, I want to then segue to to talking a little bit about our clinical applications more specifically. As you both have been talking, thinking about the consequences for our data. And I think there's something really powerful, Wendy, you might have said specifically about this is very different, but similar to how data brokers might track us for marketing purposes. And yet I, I think I, I really appreciate the, the lens that is this can be done for good and we can be informed in providing these services too. Informed as clinicians, but also informed for our clients too, and, and helping them feel like they are um, choosing, opting in to such a, a, a tracking and a, and a way to, to utilize technology for their own health and others' health too. I think that that's a pretty radical change because much of what, at least as a clinician, as a psychologist myself, um, I often feel like I'm at the helm of whatever software is available, and I just have to give this thing. And I don't really have much control over where that data travels off to. And so I think it's really important what you're highlighting here today. The, the data is created everywhere and all the time in these processes. And if we you know, have our strong informed consent and we are trying to, to use this data for good and for intervention and prevention, this is a pretty exciting way to use data that's a pretty novel approach, because we've, we've done the, the marketing and the money making, but I think it's really exciting to hear how we could potentially utilize this for health. You know, on the clinical consult, as I was talking about or alluding to just a moment ago, we're always interested in distilling down what we know from our experiences anecdotally, but also the research into actionable applied takeaways for our fellow health service psychologists and their clients, too. So I'm curious... As a clinician myself, and for you two uh, trained as psychologists, what clinical skills do we need as health service psychologists to effectively personalize our services? Is it third-party software? Is it hardware? Is it more complex than that?
2: So I I think there are several, Um, you know, a, a few things come to mind. You were talking about privacy earlier, and I think in informed consent about, you know, about technology and, and data and making sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of going forward using uh, using a certain technology when doing an intervention. That's incredibly important. Um, nobody wants, you know, a, a bad surprise later or, or for there to be a miscommunication. So I think in, in talking about, you know, clinical, clinical skills, communication always has to be at the top Um, some others that I think about in this space are certainly critical thinking and flexibility, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it can get, um, I, I think we can all get into patterns and, uh, into, you know, this treatment worked before, let me go forward with that. And we really need to think specifically about the person in front of us, of course. Mm -hmm. And, And I think, um, I think that's always something that we want to do We're, we all mean to do that but people are busy and sometimes there needs to be more of an effortful thought towards that so i was thinking about are there um are there emerging evidence-based treatments or technologies that we can use to enhance evidence-based treatments um, when i was working in private practice i had a patient come in one day and she mentioned an app to me um, that she was interested in and wanted to try and so we looked into it. We explored how to, how to use this in a way that would help um, her meet, go forward and meet her goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was really cool for me. I got to learn something new about this app. And she, we were able to uh, move the treatment forward in a way that she was interested in, and engaged in. Mm-hmm. Um, another common one, I think, are the meditation apps, mindfulness um, is an element of so many evidence-based treatments, and they can allow um, treatment in your pocket uh, or intervention in your pocket. Um, certainly, working on an individual basis to determine, you know, treatments or parts of treatments that are going to be effective for individuals based on their unique characteristics as well.
1: I think I, I'd like to add to that, though. I think it takes one of the things it takes, the skill it takes, is. is is really thinking about the world differently too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when we first started talking about this years ago when I'm talking now, 10 years ago, um, using the technology, people were really worried. You know, are you trying to replace clinical teams? Are you trying to replace healthcare? Are you trying Wendy, to- Wendy, as you it?
0: say that, oh my gosh, I hate to interrupt you, but that's the very thing that's on my mind. You've stolen my question <laughs> of like, AI is this existential threat, right? <laughs> Wendy, you're taking my job.
1: There is not an existential threat because I think that by working in teams, we've changed, we changed that conversation. If it was ever there, I never really heard it aside from a few hardcore tech folks mm-hmm. um, because they don't understand the, the complexity. And, and frankly, if you're worried about lives, you have to behave differently. Mm-hmm. So I think what this is doing, and I think people need to, to kind of, I understand that angst about this, but, but it's stopping and thinking about it very differently and really thinking about, you know, how does this give me different tools? How does this give my patients different tools? And really what we're trying to do is extend. I, I don't know anybody that isn't working too hard and not getting as much as they really, li- really would like for their, for their patients. Yeah. Um, I know when I did clinical care it was never enough. was never enough, and my pager went off all the time. Um, But I think what we're trying to do is, A, let people do what they do well Mm -hmm. um, and not have to track things that, you know, collecting data shouldn't be, you know, it's part of what we do. Understanding the data, that's what humans do well. Collecting the data, maybe not so much. Running some high-end analyses and helping visualize that data and put that together, yes. That really works for the way human, I mean, if it, when it's done well, it really helps humans look at the world differently. So um, really having that ability to kind of say, how does this help me do what I'm doing better? Right. Is, I think the skill that, it's not the skill, it's kind of the, the, the deep breath <laughs> that really makes technology change what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think psychologists, I've talked to this, radiology is changing by the hour, right? You know, AI is being embedded in all of the, all of the machinery now, and it comes up mm-hmm. with all sorts of things for clinicians. And the radiologists, they're not worried mm-hmm. because they understand that some of what they're doing, including the, the, from the best to the worst, they're not catching everything. Mm-hmm. So having an AI that will help point them in places they might not have looked either because of training, because of background, or because they just didn't even know. Sure. They look at it and they say, well, all they're going to do is make me better. Nah. And I think that's the way we have, that's the frame. And it's not an uncritical, unquestioning frame, mm-hmm. but it is, and we should always be critical and questioning of everything, but really um, stopping and thinking about, wow, what could this do? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of things could this really do? Um, and help me do the things that I'm working so hard to achieve.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, you might've had these lines too, both of you as, as clinicians, but I frequently say, you know, we've got one hour this week and it's 167 hours in a week. And oftentimes I'm not seeing somebody for two weeks. And so as you both talk about, you know, what's the place of technology, AI, smart and connected health, I'm thinking about, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one hour, I'm one person in one week or every two weeks, and sometimes even longer than that, depending on the interval or the frequency of care. And, and I, I think that this is a really, really exciting field that even before our conversation today, I want to be totally transparent, was very new to me. It was very, the, the terms that we're talking about today, precision medicine, smart and connected health. These were very, very novel and new, even as somebody that's been very interested in technology. And I often do go to that place, Wendy, of like, does this replace us? But when I do think about your answer and your response there, along with the fact that I am one person, one hour, I'm actually really, really excited about what's gonna come next. And very, very thankful that the two of you are on it. Um, before we run, any last words?
1: I think just thank you for giving us an opportunity to talk about this. I think um, AI is either either the transformation of the world or it's the end of the world. Robots, either the best or the worst. Neither. AI is not inherently good or bad, Mm -hmm. and it's how we use it. It's how we bring people together to use these tools and develop these tools. So um, I think talking about this is really important so that we make sure you know whenever anybody says it'll solve everything question mm-hmm. but if but if it's if it's going to help you and you can test that and you can see and you can work with these things then i think it really gives us a different opportunity so thanks for giving us this opportunity to talk to you about it
2: absolutely and and just to follow up um, on what wendy said i mean think we're we're not saying you know Absolutely, everyone should just adopt all of the technology. Look at it with a critical eye and think about how can this, as as you mentioned, you're you're one person for one hour a week. Um, How can this support patients, you know, between those sessions? Um, I I think there's a lot of utility there, and I I think this will um, help help broaden access and provide more equitable access as well. So I, I do think the future is bright and we're headed in a, po- a positive direction.
0: Thank you, Wendy. Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. I know you both have a very busy schedule, so I'm, I'm grateful and I know our listeners will be too that, that we were able to talk about such an important topic that, that really may revolutionize the care we give and um, thrilled to be able to have the, the talk today. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarton, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.